Well, I am excited to be continuing in our series. We started last week working through a series, Seven Letters to the Seven Churches in the Book of Revelation. And uh, sometimes people get a little intimidated by the Book of Revelation, but we're seeing that it's a little bit more doable than we thought as we're working through these specific letters that were written actually to first century churches. Not a, a, a lot of Revelation is talking about future and things to come. This is actually speaking to churches that existed at that time, and he had a specific word for each one of them, and really very transferable principles for us today. As we saw last week, he elevated what Jesus considers the target in the, the church, is that we elevate our love relationship with Jesus Christ. So we talked about that last week. This week, we're in the second letter, and it made me think of a compliment that maybe you've given or maybe uh, hopefully heard before yourself, and this is a, a real compliment. Have you ever heard this? You say just the right thing at just the right time. Maybe you've heard the opposite thing. You say the most, <laughs> you, the, the wrong thing at the wrong time. But, but that's, a, that's a compliment. It's a true compliment. When someone, when someone has control over their words to the degree that you can see, man, you're sensitive to what's going around, on around you enough that you can say the right thing at the right time. And what I'd propose this morning is that's what Jesus Christ is doing with this church that he's writing to in Smyrna is he's saying exactly the right thing at the right time. I find it interesting in all of the, the letters, there's only two of them that he doesn't have some kind of a directive or something that they need to improve on. And this is one of those uh, few letters where he's saying he's, it's really just uh, affirmation and encouragement. And I was thinking about that. I was reading some uh, different commentaries and a bunch of them were saying like, oh man, this must have been just such a great church. I was like, you know what? I've been in enough churches that I know that there's no such thing as the perfect church, so I don't think it was a lack of things he could have suggested for them to work on. I think he was being sensitive to the fact that this was a persecuted church. This was a church that, that didn't need to hear more things they needed to work on. This past week, I had uh, my two little girls that gotten in a little bit of trouble for disobedience to their dad and mom. I don't know if I, maybe I'm the only parent that has that issue with their kids. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, but but with, with my kids, after, after uh, they had been disciplined, I started going into putting on the lecture hat. You know, like, uh, well, this is the reason why. And you need to do this, this, and this. Any other parents fall into that? You get, go straight into lecture mode. And so I guess I'm the only one doing any of this. Uh, but anyway, so I'm talking to them, and I realize in the middle of that, I'm like, you know what? They don't need to hear my three-point sermon on things they need to improve. They, they, need, they need to hear that dad loves them, that he's crazy about them. They need to be reassured of who their dad is and how he feels about them. And I was thinking about that as it relates to this letter. I really see that as what Jesus Christ is doing as he writes to this church, really focusing less on things that they need to do and more on things that they need to know. Maybe some of you are showing up this morning and you're like, Pastor, I don't need another to-do list of five more things that I need to improve. I need to know, I need to hear some things that are true about the character of our God. So that's what we're going to see this morning is that, is more assurances for the church in Smyrna. Let me pray before we break into it. God, thank you for this text and that you are a God that gets the empathy thing, that you are a God that meets us exactly where we're at. God, I thank you for this message that you wrote to this church that transfers to us today. 
in so many different ways. I pray that you teach us through this text that I'd be small, you'd be great, that you'd be glorified in this. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you wouldn't mind turning with me, we're in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11 this morning. And uh, as I typically do, we kind of break it down into different chunks. And so we're going to be doing that, starting with verse 8. It's a lot easier if you're reading the same thing I am, though. It says this in verse 8. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. A little beginning intro, I wanted to give a little backdrop there. First, first off, you remember last week, you, you, those words when you, you hear that written to the angel in the church in Smyrna, basically that's another word for messenger, or most believe that he's referring to the leader of the church of Smyrna, a message that he's asking to pass on to the rest of the people in this little small home church. So Smyrna, that's just a fun word to say first off, say it to your neighbor right now, Smyrna. Uh, so Smyrna, a little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna was a, a, a church, it was about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which was the church that we read about last week. So basically, this is on the, the route from Patmos, stop one there, stop two is Smyrna, and that would be the entire route of the seven letters, the direction that they would go if they were delivering these. So we're in the second one there, it's about 35 miles north of Ephesus, about the exact distance, I looked this up, of Ventura from Agora Hills, if you're wondering distance-wise. And uh, so 35 miles north, it was a city that was really known for its beauty. It had a couple different names for Smyrna, uh, other than Smyrna, was the Ornament of Asia, the Crown of Asia. It's in present-day Turkey. And unlike Ephesus, the city of Smyrna still exists today. It's called Izmir, if you guys have heard of that. And you can see a picture first of the old Smyrna. This was what it looked like, uh, archaeologically. Uh, an archaeologist, how do you say that? You got it. They, they came up with this picture uh, of an idea, and you can see kind of the expanse of it. It has a little bit of a, a Roman look to it. it, has a cathedral there, a port city, very, very wealthy, known for its beauty. You can see then a present-day picture. It actually, it looks a lot alike. Like, it hasn't changed that much uh, drastically, present-day uh, but there, that picture, known for its beauty, it got its name Smyrna from the thing, one of the main products that it actually produced was myrrh. Remember gold, frankincense, and myrrh was a perfume of that time. So known for its beauty, it looked good and smelled good, but the truth was it was a scary place to live for a Christ follower. It was a very scary place. It was known for its persecution of Christ followers. Kind of the, one of the weird things is they had a real obsession with their Caesar. The Caesar of Rome, they, were, they just really held in high regard. And so because of that, a Christian that wasn't willing to bend his knee to Caesar was in a dangerous position. And church history tells about tons of persecution and execution that happens of believers there. So he starts out this letter to this church in Smyrna, and he's writing to them. And I find it interesting, the first thing he does is talk about aspects of his character. What does it say? The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. There's no accidents on the words that he chooses to describe himself with. If you think about this, if you're going through a really difficult time, you want to hear, oh, wait a second, 
I'm not crazy in following the leader that I'm following. You, that, that's an important message for them to get, to get into their heads that, hey, I'm following the first and the last. In other words, the one that transcends all the craziness that's going on in their world. Some of us this morning maybe need that exact same reminder as you flip through the news and you're like, what in the world is going on? We need to be reminded of who it is that we're serving. Who's the leader that's on the throne? Because sometimes we get confused and forget that we're on the winning team. To those people that are being persecuted and at risk of, of death, he also reminds them, he says, who died and came to life. Making sure that you understand I'm the, all, the ultimate God from beginning to end and I've had victory over the thing that's probably the greatest fear in your life. So it's reassuring them based on who he is. So he starts with the reassurance of the leader, and I wonder if that's maybe something that we need to hear as well this morning. Moves to another assurance in verse 9, the assurance of what true wealth is. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Starts out with those words, I know your tribulation. Have you ever had somebody tell you, they've come up to you and you know that you're going through a difficult time and they say to you, I totally understand what you're going through. And have you ever thought to yourself, you have no idea what I'm going through? Anybody, let's be honest here, confession time, we're in church. You're like, you haven't experienced that. You don't know this. You don't know me. You hardly even know anything about my situation. You can't speak to that and say, you know exactly what I'm going through. Anybody, confession time. We've been there and done that. And here, here's the truth, though. In this situation, is not like that. Jesus, when he says those words, I know your tribulation. He's somebody that gets it. He understands, man. They hated me long before they hated you. And the worst thing that you can picture in your mind of happening to you, I already went through that. I already experienced that. So when he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, he's like, I, uh, I, I get it. And poverty there, the word that's used for that, that is interesting, isn't the idea of just like a, a few bucks short on rent this month? It's talking about a kind of poverty that means no means to move forward. Zero resources. So this is a destitute group that's, uh, that, that's living in fear of, of being executed and saying, I get it. I know what you're going through. I love what he, what he points there in parentheses. I don't know if it's in parentheses in your version there, but what does he say? He says, I know your, your poverty, but you are rich. Sneaks in this little reminder there, this little reminder. Imagine this little house church that's getting together and they barely have enough uh, food for the day and they, they hear this letter being written. What, what do you mean? But you're rich. That doesn't make any sense to me. How, how, am I, how am I rich? I barely have two coins to rub together. Like That doesn't make any sense. He's saying, but here's the thing that I love about Jesus. He understands that in his kingdom, things look a little bit different as to who's considered rich and who's considered poor. Who's considered, and some of us have maybe experienced that ourselves, seen that, that, that uh, earthly riches don't necessarily solve everything. Here he's saying, you're rich. I was watching this uh, documentary over Christmas. I don't know if you guys have heard of this one before. Uh, my brother-in-law recommended it. It's called Searching for Sugar Men. 
Anybody seen this? I'm going to say I might be the only one. And so, uh, and so I, was, I was watching this. It was recommended to me. I was like, oh, it's pretty interesting. And it's a story. You can see the, the gentleman there. His name is Sixto Rodriguez. That's just fun to say. This gentleman lived in Detroit and was a day laborer, basically going from paycheck to paycheck, just making ends meet. So they're telling this story of this gentleman and kind of his struggles. He, when he was younger, he used to be in a band. He used to aspire to do music. Maybe that's like some of us in the room here. Uh, but but he used to be in a band uh, when he was real young, like in his early 20s. He had created the, his first CD, first and only CD. And as they're telling his story, it's telling the so- story of two uh, music f- huge fans in South Africa that were on the search to find the infamous Rodriguez. You come to find out that his CD somehow made it to South Africa, and he became like the Beatles of South Africa. It was like this huge movement, like concerts and like everything without the artist being there, which was kind of funny. So the, the story is in this documentary is they finally find this Rodriguez guy. He finds out that he's a huge rock star, in South Africa. Some of us are still clinging to that hope for ourselves. But, uh, but so he's like, no, 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 no. He said, they're like, trust me, you're a really big deal in South Africa. So they fly him out there and they start, they set up this tour across South Africa. He should, and they're like, can you at least go up? He's like in his 60s now. They're like, can you at least go up and play a couple of your songs? He's like, well, I guess I have to look up the words. And, they, and, uh, and he goes up and he shows up to the first thing. It's a packed stadium, like thousands and thousands of people coming to hear the great Rodriguez perform. He goes out, and they, they actually captured it on film of him going out there for the first time. And everybody's cheering. He's like looking behind him to see if they're cheering for him. And he finds out he's super wealthy. He's getting paid for these concerts and like all this crazy stuff. But I was thinking about that as it relates to this, is in God's kingdom, man, those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we're sons and daughters. Like we're sons and daughters of the king. Like, a, like a, when, when you look in that kingdom, you're a really big deal. You're really wealthy. Like things are, things are looking really good if you're in Jesus Christ. You are a big deal. In fact, tell the person right now next to you, you're a big deal. That's right. They like to hear that. And, and, and you see, in God's kingdom, it looks real different than it does here on earth. And he's just sneaking in that little word of assurance. He says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. And then he goes on, in the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Basically, the idea of slander there, Jesus probably knew a little bit about that, a little bit about public pot shots, right? A little bit about people ridicule him verbally. You remember the, the cross? What did it say at the top was etched in the top of the cross as Jesus is being hung there and humiliated? King of the Jews, right? King of the Jews. He knew a little bit about slander, and so he could speak to them directly. He could relate to them. And they point to the who's at the source of this. And he says to them, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, men and women that, that were opposing them, that might be Jewish by descent, 
But as we learned back in Romans 11, if you remember that series, what a true Jew is, is somebody that's embraced Jesus Christ. That's part of the family then. So he's saying, he describes them, and I love how he doesn't mince words at all. He's like, not really, uh, that's not really socially polite to call somebody from the synagogue of Satan. I don't know if you've referred to anybody recently about that, but, but, like, but the idea here is that I think we go through life and we miss it on what a big deal it is, the spiritual realm to all of this. Like we, we, we just see the, the here and now, the physical and what's going on. So often when you see at Jesus, when he talks, he points to the supernatural. The fact that we're in a battle, that there's something going on behind the scenes, someone driving what we're seeing on the news other than who we're seeing on the news. We see it as it continues here in verse 10. It says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Again, pointing to the supernatural. You see the words, though, that it starts with that section. Do not fear. Do not fear. We just finished our promises series this last spring, and really out of the promises that's uh, repeated, that's probably one of the most repeated promises in all of Scripture or directives. Do not fear. It's not supposed to be part of the life of a believer. But then I was thinking about this and back in relational terms of how hard those words must have been for him to say to his kids, do not fear what you're about to suffer. In other words, he knew what was coming, but he wanted to assure them. He wanted to encourage them, do not fear. Some years back, uh, my son Chase, who's gotten a lot bigger from this picture, uh, Tell me that's not the cutest picture of all time. So, so he had fallen and really cut open, gotten a pretty good gash above his eye. And I had to take him, I don't know if as a parent you've ever had to do this, had to take him to go get stitches. And that's not fun trying to explain to a little kid. You're like, well, they're just going to take some string and tie up that, that hole in your head. You're like, what? And so trying to assure him he was pretty, pretty, looked pretty pathetic there and, uh, and, uh, and cute. But, uh, but I, I remember trying to help him make sense out of this, this whole thing. And I remember, man, man, this stinks. It stinks when you know that there's pain that someone you care about is about to go through. Anybody been that before? Maybe somebody that you care about that's sick or going through difficulty. You're like, man, if I could take that for you, I would. What does he say to them? He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. I love that he comforts them, but he doesn't give false hope either. He doesn't give false hope. Wouldn't you rather have somebody that just shoots straight with you in life? Someone that's not going to sugarcoat things. He's like, man, don't fear, but it is going to get rough for you. Basically, that's what he's saying to the church in Smyrna. And as you look as to what was going on, I was just doing a little reading on what was happening at that, that time. He comforts them, but doesn't give false hope. Because the, the, the Caesar of, at the time, his name was Domitian. I'm really having trouble with my words today. You can see a, a picture of him there, uh, a, a statue of sort. I don't know what happened to his eyeballs, but, uh, uh, but kind, of a, uh, uh, kind of the way you picture like a, a Roman Caesar is the way he looks. And he was pretty obsessed with the, kind of the same thing that most of Caesars were imp- obsessed with themselves. And so in, in order to elevate self, he had to make sure that there wasn't anything else being worshipped. So one of the things that this particular Caesar required was once a year, everyone in Smyrna 
had to come and burn incense to celebrate and worship the Caesar. Well, as you can imagine, that became a pretty difficult time. In fact, most uh, theologians believe that's the 10 days that it's referring to uh, that, that they are facing was this annual time. Because when you had completed doing the, the incense, burning the incense, you were given a certificate to say that you had completed doing this, this incense deal. And so if you didn't have the, the certificate, man, you are at the risk of persecution and even death. So he, he's warning them. He's saying, man, there's some, there's some difficulty coming ahead. And again, what I pointed out before is he points to the source of it saying, this is the devil that's doing this. A lot of times when we watch the, the present day persecution and you watch the news and you see like, oh, guess who claimed that they took ownership to this attack? Guess who it was? ISIS, or as Obama says, ISIL, whatever that means. And, uh, and so, and so uh, ISIS it takes credit for this attack, and you're just like, man, that's terrible what they've done. We're here in Scripture where we realize who's actually at the source of persecution. It's not all the per- always the person that's on the headlines. It's the one that's behind the scenes doing the work. The fact that we're in a spiritual battle, whether we recognize it or not, when Jesus describes persecution, he points directly to the source there. You got to wonder, maybe present day and back then, you're just like, man, have you ever thought this before? Why, why does God allow things happen to his kids? Ones that he, that he claims to love and care about. Why does he allow them to go through persecution or may fill in the blank for you, trials or difficulties or, or whatever it may be, in their case, the, even the risk of death? Why does he do that? It's interesting because I would propose that the answer is right here in the text. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be, what's the word next? Tested. That you may be tested. See, God uses the trials and the, and, and, and the tribulation and the things we go through. He's saying, I'm doing that to test you, to send you through that. Because why? Because I know coming out on the other side of it, you're going to be shaped and molded to be more like me. Some of us have been through that and seen that even ourselves. When we actually persevere, you think about persecution, what that actually does in the life of a believer. If you think about it, it's, there's, no, there's no nominal Christians that make it through persecution. There's no people that are kind of halfway in and halfway out that make it through on the other end. It weeds out who's really in and who's not. Read this article about this pastor, American pastor, that had a chance to go and speak and encourage this group of, uh, of Chinese pastors that were a part of kind of a hidden church movement in China where it was forbidden. He shows up and he's talking to them and he's just kind of trying to share stories. And, and he says when he has the opportunity, he says, listen, guys, I just want you to know that our church back at home, we're very committed to praying for you that you'll persevere. And we're praying that God takes you out of this persecution, that he removes it, that you're, that you're finally free to worship God the way you, you desire and that you take that away. And one of the, the pastor pauses him. He's like, that's so funny. He says, because we're over here praying that you in America will experience the same persecution that we're going through, that will refine you, that will test you, that will elevate and push you to determine who am I actually following? 
Who am I actually following? So it's ironic. We're praying for them. They're there praying for us that we'll experience it. And that's why he's saying, I allow it because I know that testing is a good thing. It shouldn't shock us then if we experience any degree of persecution. Anybody else, when you hear topics of persecution, you're like me and you're like, I feel kind of guilty because we don't get a lot of it here in the United States. Maybe the slander thing, maybe, maybe somebody said something poorly about you. I can think of a few times in my life that somebody said something because of my, my faith, but you're like, man, in and, and, and the scope of things, not a huge deal. Through reading some stats, though, because that's not the case around our, our world, there's a, a ministry called Open Door Ministries that tracks persecution of the present church. They have an estimate that, estimate that in 2016, there was over 100 million Christians under some degree of significant persecution on the planet. Isn't that crazy when you allow those numbers to kind of sink in? Like, just because we're not here in Little Agora Hills being persecuted doesn't mean that it's not a reality. And the other statistic I found interesting, that in 2015, so they kind of recap the stats, that there's over 7,000 Christians that were literally put to death for their faith. 7,000 people. Like, imagine an auditorium with 7,000 people. That's how many people present day are being persecuted. That's why in 2 Timothy, we're told 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And here's what I'd like to say to our church this morning. Just because we're not currently being persecuted doesn't mean we won't see it in our lifetime doesn't mean we won't see it in our lifetime. So we watch the news, you're like, man, it, it wouldn't take a, take a very drastic turn for things to get really bad for Christians here in the United States, right? So just because we're not currently experiencing it doesn't mean we can assume that we won't in our lifetime. Maybe some of us, some of our senior saints in the room are like, all right, I'm about to make it through. You might not see it, but then what gets me, because I have three young kids, you're like, and I need to raise up my kids so that they're ready because there's no guarantee that they won't see it in their lifetime. I read the rest of Revelations, and guess what? Revelation, guess what? It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. I mean, I hate to be the party pooper here, but in fact, it gets pretty grim for those that are following Jesus Christ. And so that, that's the thing that I want to instill in us to make sure that we in advance, are laying a foundation of faith and building up so that our walls can stand up when that day does arrive. To make sure that we have a foundation. It's not just like a casual, yeah, I kind of do the church thing every once in a while. I kind of, yeah, me and Jesus, we're good, you know. But you're like, but there's no real depth there. There's no real intimacy. There's no real love there. That's what he's, he's, he's warning against. But I, I love, even in the middle of that, this part that's a little bit of a, uh, some hard truth. He, he, he gives them even assurance in that. I don't know if, I, if maybe you caught this assurance. And he says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. What I love about anytime you're talking about tribulation, there's almost always attached to it a duration of time. God knows what we can, we've learned this in other texts that we've read. God knows what we can handle, and that's how much he gives us. He promises, I won't give you more than you can handle. So the assurance to those, he's like, listen, 
If you can make it through these 10 days, and there's much debate whether that was figurative language or that was specific language to the time, but if he's saying either way, the big idea is that it's for a season. It's for a season. So assurance that we see there, assurance that there's a duration of time, the last, or actually one more after that, assured also that reward is coming. It says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Basically saying, hey, regardless of, and this I'd love for us to hear because, man, it'd be fun for somebody to think back to this 20 years down the road and be like, I remember when the pastor said this, never, ever renounce Jesus Christ. Don't do it. Like, hold on regardless of what happens. That's the one mistake you can't blow it on. You can't blow it on this. You can't renounce Jesus Christ. Hold to that. He says, be faithful unto death. And he assures them, I will give you the crown of life. Crown of life is not talking about, uh, is not talking about eternity in heaven. That's a, a specific thing, a crown. Uh, we remember from different lessons that we've done that a crown is something that God gives based on, on our, our, our actions here on earth. And the thing that's cool about the crowns that are given to us is then at some point, we don't know exactly how that'll play itself out in heaven, we get to lay them back at Jesus' feet, kind of like this big celebration. You get to bring it to the party. I was at a, a birthday party uh, this week, John Lopez. Happy birthday, John. And uh, we sh- showed up, we went to this party, and in the middle of it, after the cake and everything, I started noticing people were like handing cards and giving gifts. And I was like, shoot, I didn't bring anything. Like I, I'm, I'm looking through the wall, and I got a couple bucks, you know. I got an old half-used Taco Bell gift card. I don't know, but but uh, but but basically, I, I just kind of had to say like, hey, sorry, John, I didn't bring anything. And uh, I didn't know adults gave gifts at birthday parties anymore. And anyway, that's a whole other thing. But uh, but here's the here's the thing. I felt kind of dumb, and I I tried to extrapolate that, and maybe it's a stretch, man. I don't want to show up at the end of all this. We're at this huge celebration of the King of Kings. Somebody's, uh, yeah, Diana's singing the Revelation song, and, uh, and we're all there partying, and, and they're like, I don't have any gifts. I just showed up at church and was a secret agent Christian that never spoke up or did jack squat. Like, I don't want to be that guy. Get anybody else like that? Like, I want to be the one that's in the middle of party, like, here's my crowns, man, this is awesome. Like, that's what he's saying. Don't worry you will get paid back for the things you endure, the things you go through here. He's saying, be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. I'm guessing that what he has to offer is going to be a little better than what we suffer. It's going to be a win scenario. Last thing, he gives one last assurance, verse 11. Assured we are protected. Listen to this. It says, he who has an ear, look next to you. Is that talking to anybody in here? Okay, all of us. Uh, he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's how he ends his letter. He ends this. He says, listen, if you conquer, if you stay the course, you keep on chasing after me, you keep on following me, you keep elevating my word, you keep sharing me, you keep clinging to what the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. When you cling to that, he says, listen, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. When you hear that, at first you read that, you're like, well, well, what's the question that you'd ask? What's the second death, right? Anybody else wonder that question? Well, what's the, the second death? Like, I, I'm kind of scared of the first death. Anybody, let's be real, like, I got my airbags and seatbelt because I'm trying to avoid that whole first death thing. But here's the thing that I was thinking about with this. What if we're all scared 
about the wrong death? What if we've got it mixed up? What if we're, we're confused about which thing we should be afraid of? We're like afraid of, of the wrong monster. Like we're all afraid of, oh, when we breathe our last breath here, that's so scary. And he's like, no, that's not the one we need to worry about. Revelations 20, 14. Take a look at this on the screen here. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Like, oh, wait a second. That defines what the second death is. Someday, after we've breathed our last breath, we're going to give an account for our life. And if our name isn't in the book of life, which the only way it's written in there is by Jesus' blood-stained hands, written saying, I died, I covered them, he embraced what I did on the cross, that's how we're in that book. That's the one and only way. If we're not going through that, then we're going to have to give it like, well... I, I tried my best. Sorry. No, that didn't work. Well, I did a lot of good things. I did some nice stuff. I helped people. No, that doesn't cut it. Like what he's saying there is it's only in that book of life. That's the only way that we avoid the second death, which determines where we spend eternity. Still get, can't get my mind wrapped around that, like eternity. Like we're going to exist in 50,000 years from now. You're still going to exist. Like, that's a crazy thing. So he's saying, listen, the thing that you have to know as he's talking about these people that are going through a really difficult time, the thing you have to know, you don't have to worry about the second death. Maybe be a little nervous about the first, but listen, the one that counts, I'm protecting you from that one. That's the big deal. Where you spend eternity is what matters. And for those of us that are in here, man, I would love for that to be, even this passage, just to be that plea to you, man, Make sure you got that piece figured out. Don't leave this church this, on this Sunday morning without having that solved. Making sure you, uh, man, it's got to understand this, this book of life. Let's talk, man, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the gospel message that we are broken. We are separated from him because of our sin. And because of that, he didn't leave us in that situation. He intervened, came down, lived the perfect life, died as a sacrifice for our sin so that we could be healed and restored. But if we don't embrace that, if we can't point to a time when we've done that, man, man, that second death is something we actually need to be afraid of. Don't leave the service today without getting that solved. We learn in church history about a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp, here's a, a picture of him in church history. And uh, what, what's interesting about Polycarp is that he was the church leader of Smyrna about 50 years after this letter was written. So you're tracking with me? So future church leader of the, the, the church in Smyrna, Polycarp. Well, as things progressed in Smyrna, things didn't get better or easier. In fact, the persecution only elevated. That's why maybe why he was giving such degrees of assurance in this time is to kind of build up for what was to come. Well, Polycarp, at 86 years old, so an older dude was, uh, was there, and he's finally had become so, so uh, vocal about his faith. Uh, finally, they're just like, man, take this guy out. I don't care if he's 86. He was arrested at 86 years old, and he's brought into this stadium, which was likely the one that was rendered by the artist there. And this stadium was not just used for sports, but also for persecution of Christians. 
He was given in front of the stadium that lots of, because he was a pretty well-known leader in this church, lots of people had gathered. And so they gave him the opportunity. They had arrested other Christians. He says, hey, here's one more chance. If you're going to live, if you're going to keep on enjoying your golden years, what we need you to do is we need you to say, away with the atheists, referring to the Christians. Isn't that kind of ironic? These are the people that didn't believe in the Caesar. Away with the atheists. So they said, they said, we're giving you a chance to say this. So he looks at the, looks at the, the, the other Christians there that have been arrested, looks at the entire stadium, and looks back again, looks at the stadium. I'm making up some of this. But, uh, but this is what he said. Uh, uh, but he, he, he looks at the entire stadium and points to the entire crowd and says, away with the atheists. I'm like, whoa, that guy is, I think maybe there's something about age that you get from what I've told that you get, so you really just don't care anymore. And, uh, and so, so he's like, he goes, away with the atheists. And at that, the history tells us that they started gathering up wood, and they're going to burn this guy literally at the stake in front of all these people cheering it on. Burn this guy. So they start gathering the wood, gathering the wood. They asked him one more time as the woods gathered around his feet, oh, just renounce it and he'll live. Here was what he was quoted as saying. He said, 80 and six years I've served him. And he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my Lord and my Savior? That was the words of Polycarp just before they lit him up. Just before they lit him up, before they, they lit the fire, before, before he's, he's standing there. And, and it says also that he didn't die from the fire, that they actually had to stab him multiple times to take this old man's life. It's like, man, man. I was thinking about that this week, and I was kind of getting emotional just thinking about that, I hope probably for you as well. I was thinking about that. I was like, I wonder if he was in that room when this letter was being read. When this letter was being read, I wonder if he kept on repeating, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I wonder if he was there, he was clinging to the same assurances that we're given today, the same things that we talk through. He's clinging to the fact of who his leader is. He's the one, the beginning and the end. He's the one, he's the one that died and rose again. I wonder if he was clinging to that assurance. Wonder if he was clinging to like man his redefinition of what wealth is. Wonder if he was clinging to the that fact that tribulation is temporary. Wonder if he was clinging to the fact that reward was coming and that he was protected from the second death. Same assurances that he likely clung to. You can't imagine that he hadn't at least seen the letter that was written to the church from Jesus Christ. The same assurances that he clung to is what we're given today. Stay the course. Stay the course. Keep chasing after him. Not this halfway in and halfway out deal. This, this is serious. This is, and sometimes you're like, man, I came here to be encouraged. And you're like talking about like end times. Like, no, th- this is what Jesus wrote to the church because he wanted us to hear these things this morning. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for this truth and this reality. And not everything is sunny and perfect on this side of heaven. But we have so much promise and so much assurance of what's on the other side. And that's what we're clinging to. God, I pray that this church would be deeply rooted in you. When the storms come, when the craziness comes, God, that we would hold tight. We'd never renounce you. 
God, I thank you so much that you're worthy of that. Thank you for the fact that you are crazy about us as your kids, that you loved us enough not to leave us in our situation, but to come as God Almighty in an earth suit. Come live the perfect life, die on a cross, so that we could have relationship with you. We thank you for the fact that you'll give us exactly what we need when we need it. You you tell us, fear not. You're with us always, even till the end of the age. Thank you for that truth. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. What a beautiful assurance. Even that song is, is love never fades. It never runs out, ever, and literally eternal. That's pretty crazy to think about. Let's live in that love this week, amen? God bless you. Have a great day.